91.7 WVXU is proud to support this and other locally produced podcasts through its podcast network. For an easy-to-navigate curated list of some of the best local and national podcasts, visit Podcast Central at wvxu.org slash podcast central. Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 181 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at www.mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. This episode of The Twelfth Story marks the launch of a new interview-based format we're calling the Founder Series. Our library was formed by an ambitious group of entrepreneurs with a thirst for knowledge and self-improvement. As a tribute to their grit and ingenuity, we'll be talking to founders of local companies, large and small, about their entrepreneurial journeys and what they've read along the way. For the inaugural episode, we're thrilled to be joined by Bryant Goulding, co-founder of Rheingeist Brewery. Since opening in 2013, in the cavernous skeleton of an old bottling plant in Over the Rhine's historic brewery district, Rheingeist has enjoyed explosive growth and passionate fandom from Cincinnati to Boston. Um, Bryant, uh, for any of our listeners who don't know what Rheingeist Brewery is, can you give us a little primer? Well, Rheingeist is a small brewery. We're uh, about three and a half years old. Um, well, before the end of June, we opened in 2013, uh, brewery up in the old Christian Marlin bottling plant, just north of Liberty on Elm Street. And uh, we make uh, a, a scintillating array of 96 different beer styles, a lot of them hoppy, a lot of them sessionable, some historically bound, and others that we're kind of pushing the phrase of beer styles. Um, we have 200 employees and self-distribute our beer here in Cincy and are now available as of last week in four states, the fourth, um, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Kentucky, and Ohio. So a lot of, we talk about on this podcast all the time, we talk about our founders um, of the library. In 1835, these were scrappy young entrepreneurs um, who, you know, they were trying to put something together to improve their lives. They wanted to pull their resources and create a place where they could come together and learn and increase their knowledge. And it was a very difficult process. And I and I wonder, you know, what were what were some of your challenges starting this business? I mean, really, the question I want to ask you is, what are the best and worst things about starting a company in Cincinnati? Best and worst. Um, I think one of the scariest stepping into it, um, and I've, I've got a pretty healthy appetite for risk. We saw the opportunity in Cincinnati for a brewery. Um, we saw a lot of people drinking craft, but n- not many breweries here doing what we thought we could do with hops and with an exciting brand and messaging and, and some energy. Um, but it was moving to a city that I had never lived in before. And, and I think as I got here and I'm sleeping on Bob's couch, moved here from San Francisco where Bob and I had met and, uh, meeting people and, and getting to know their story, telling them why I was there. And um, everyone had been has been here for a long time. It's a very close-knit city, and there's less kind of um, exchange between cities. And I think that's changed significantly now. But back when I moved here, it was kind of felt hard to crack into the social space. Um, and 
that has um, has been a personal challenge to do so, but it's really turned into something special where we've built this family and, and are now very connected. Um, and I think that's similar. So one of the best things that we've done um, is create a culture that we had a premonition of, of what we thought Rheingeist could be and what we thought this business could be. And we actually pulled together as part of a branding exploration a bunch of if Rheingeist were a personality, who would it be? And it was like Salvador Dali and Ernest Hemingway and Jack Nicholson with a crazy face on and um, the, like that sort of spirit we had hoped to cobble together with people that would be very passionate and fervent about beer. And what's happened over time is we've got 200 great colorful employees that work there, work very hard and, um, and yet have all this personality and respect for each other and, and sense of humor and eccentricity. And I think that's um, one of the most satisfying things to, to have a, a, a perception of what you could be and then watch that play out in a way that's more valuable and satisfying and satisfying than you'd ever seen. T describe for me, if you can, the sort of emotional roller coaster that that you go on when you start a company. And I know you know we d we don't have Bob Bonner here, your co-founder, but it's it's definitely worth mentioning that Bryant is one of two um, that he has that yes. he has another half. And I'm wondering, like, you know, what are some of the sort of peaks and troughs um, that an entrepreneur experiences? Um, while starting a business, and, and how do you kind of work through that? Yeah, I think it's equal parts exciting and daunting. Um, and some of the scariest parts are, you know, so much of your personal identity and how you define yourself is what you do for a living. And um, to press pause on that for creating something and not knowing exactly how it will come about. And uh, we started with zero capital, basically. Um, I had the last money that I had we put as a down payment on the brew house um, before we were funded, which was a harrowing experience because that was like the last of it. And I'm sleeping on Bob's couch and I didn't know what was next. Um, so I think without the definition of a job and, and something that might be, but isn't quite yet, and you're not quite sure if it's going to, and I didn't have a plan B, maybe move back to San Francisco and get another job, but I had had a great job and I wasn't really sure. I think that was a, one of the more challenging aspects of being kind of in betwixt in between. And we had all this energy and, and we're writing the business plan and going back and forth on what our beer portfolio should look like and what beer ideas and, and what kind of hops should we play with and what should be our naming conventions. And, and we knew we needed a brand that was very clean and simple and which, which branding agency might, might bring that vision to life. and. And all of that work that we were spending hours and hours on and really in an exciting way, um, yet daunted by this may or may not work. <laughs> and it was a good four months of pitching potential investors and having them say variations of no or unresponsiveness. Um, and then more interest, I think, um, when we started to focus on people that really wanted Cincinnati to, to win and, um, and over the Rhine to come back and our brewing history to be resurrected in a way that was um, that they saw happening in other cities. Um, so I think I think that that period of time was was daunting. Um, there, you know, money's never been a, a huge driver for me, but um, feeling of making an impact and and there was this sort of purgatory and limbo where we were talking a lot about doing stuff and yet not quite doing anything yet because we couldn't. Um, 
and, and lacking structure. And I was ended up on delivering coffee for Bob's existing business, Tazamia, on Fridays, one day a week. And I would be driving a van around delivering coffee beans. And it was unlike any job I'd ever had before. Um, but it was something and uh, got me out there and kind of learned the geography and where supermarkets were and where coffee shops were and some of the neighborhoods. And so that was productive, but that was one day a week and the rest of it was very amorphous. And there's only so much time you can put into thinking about the same thing. Um, so I think it was that, that, I guess the psychological stresses of being adrift, even with a plan, was, were harder than I had anticipated. So once you sort of, once you were able to overcome that, that obstacle of cash, and kind of get things going, was it sort of an avalanche of activity all at once, or how, like how was how did you kind of get into it? Yeah, we had uh, we had this used brew uh, house that I had discovered when I was working for a brewery in L.A. Um, Golden Road. I had gone down into Mexico and found this used brew house. So that was going to be the it's still sitting in the brewery today. Um, that was how we were going to make the beer. We knew that, so we got that shipped up to the empty warehouse. We signed a lease. Things really started to to build momentum. We we started specking out, interviewing general contractors, and then realizing building a brewery was something most contractors had not done before, so we were going to have to play an expert role, and we might as well just GC the job ourselves, more or less. So we started taking baby steps there, and we got the brewery back here and started putting together this used brew house, and I'm like running around looking for you know the right bolt pattern to rebuild this rusty piece so that we can put it back together and reassemble the grain assembly um, that ran in a 70-foot horizontal um, orientation in the brewery in Mexico, and we were converting to a up and down across two different planes, um, kind of a complicated transition, and doing things that were really hands-on. You know, wake up the next morning, put your boots on, go back to the brewery, figure out how to put more of this together, and Bob was doing the same thing. So it was really, uh, that was a powerfully positive, like just everything we can to get the brewery open, and we didn't know when that would be, but we just kind of were hustling and getting at it from every angles, building tables, things I had never done before. I'd never really worked with my hands. And all of a sudden there was this opportunity to express ourselves and do as much as possible. And I wanted, you know, it's our brand. It's, it's a blank slate. So as much as you put into it, you'll get out. And uh, so I think that was, that was a really positive, crazy, chaotic time. And then we, we started brewing test batches and Jim came on board um, and drinking our test batches up against the best out there. And refining what hops we could use and we couldn't get some hops on the open market so were there alternatives and and yet this one hop amarillo is is a very scarce hop it's um, under patent control and so we knew it, had, it delivers this awesome gummy bear tropical fruit character that we couldn't really substitute no matter how many different hops or blends that we tried and so we started to i started to call some of the the network that i had met out on the west coast for um for selling beer for all those years and ended up scoring. We could get it two years from now, but we couldn't get it today. So I, we traded some of our futures contract for Amarillo today, and then we started to lean in on, hone in on that recipe. And then as soon as we got beer in tanks, which was January, uh, sorry, May into the early part of June, I started going around and really uh, introducing people to the brand that would become Rheingeist, and we actually had a name now, and not just a, a brewery in OTR. And I started realizing how much people didn't go down to OTR still in many other parts of the, the city. And uh, and then we opened up and uh, 2,500 people, we estimate, came through that first weekend. And it was really hot and muggy, <laughs> which is good for um, feeding people, thirsty people beer. And, uh, 
and it was just chaos. It was brew more beer, get more tanks. Cincinnati was really, really thirsty for it. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're in Cincinnati, it is highly likely that you that you are aware of Rheingeist. Um, but for our listeners who who are not who don't know about about Rheingeist, could you describe describe the brand, describe the logo? It's very iconic, stands out on the shelves. Um, and and talk about the process of how you got there because I think there's 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 a f- bit of a funny story to it. Yeah, we uh, we knew I had sold beer for three other breweries before we started Rheingeist, and I knew you sold beer with relationships, you sold beer with quality, with the innovation behind a brand, but the the visual aspect of a brand out there on shelves um, in a, a market that today there are now almost six thousand breweries operating. When we opened up, it was somewhere around 4,000. Um, there's a brewery that opens up every 18 hours is, I think, the, That's insane. The, the rate today. And we wanted something that would stand out on a shelf that had a dizzying array of choices. Um, so we wanted this simplicity and, and this uh, kind of a visual arresting, something that would sear itself into your memory and yet be very clean to the eye and draw the eye in a crazy chaotic shelf because of its kind of block color. And um, Rheingeist, the name, means spirit of the Rhine, ghost of the Rhine. And um, we wanted to balance something aggressive enough that you would remember, and yet um, pleasant enough or straightforward enough that our moms would wear the t-shirts. And we thought that was a good kind of balance across the uh, consumer spectrum that would accompany hipsters to beer geeks to you know, Joe Normal to everyone in between and our moms. <laughs> um, and so we ended up looking for someone in the, in the design world that had built a brand like this visually before um, and interviewed a few folks that I had come into contact on the West Coast because we also felt like we had come from San Francisco and bringing some of the design inspiration from an outside place might inform the brand better. We were going to be local to Cincinnati and proud of our Cincinnati heritage, but in a, a visual, with visual vocabulary that was informed by the hops come from the West Coast, the IPA revolution arguably started on the West Coast. So we had a little bit of that in our veins. Um, and so that this ghost of the Rhine, we, we brought up uh, Helms Workshop, which is actually out of Austin, Texas. And they had designed a few really clean brands, some coffee brands and a little hot dog shop down there in Austin, Texas, and brought them up to Cincinnati, walked them through the space. And they were really struck by that, that magic of of architecture and and almost like that Williamsburg feel to over the Rhine and a lot of the creative characters that we introduced them to over a couple of nights hanging out here. And they spat back to us um, design that we're, we didn't love the first round. And it was, it, we were frustrated, I think, because it was the first time we'd ever done this. Um, but there was this little seed, this little skull drop in one of the designs um, that we really, over time, were drawn back to. Like there was something really powerful there. And yet, it looked like a little alien and it could be a little scary and we, we weren't quite sure. So, but we, we kind of ran in that direction because that like, drop of history in every batch and, and the spirit of brewers past, there are literally brewers that used to work in the same building that was a brewery a hundred years ago. And uh, as that built momentum and Rheingeist started to really kind of settle into itself as a brand identity, um, we, we just kept taking le- taking more and more out of the design to clean it into what today our cans and our, our logo has the a little skull drop um, wrapped in a lockup and has very clean color bands throughout a can. So it looks almost like Andy Warhol and his Campbell Soup, very simplified art that we felt like would be very effective to draw your eye on the shelf. 
And then we've played with uh, different color combinations to draw your eye and, and to try and convey the spirit of the beer, if, if there is, or the personality of the, the flavor, with beer names like Cougar, which is light and bright and approachable, and Sabertooth Tiger, which has a very aggressive hot bill, and Mastodon, which is a, a very Belgian dark strong, strong ale. Um, Truth was our IPA because, uh, named such because we, um, we felt like the world needed another IPA, like it needed a hole in its head. And that was going to be the big differentiator if, if people wanted to drink this IPA over many others. Um, and we, we were drinking blind up against competition, hoping that would be the case. But it was our truth. It was going to make or break us um, how relevant we would be as a brand and our growth opportunity. Even today, um, we brewed 96 different styles in, in 2016. Truth is 45% of those sales. And it's one of our fastest growing brands today. So, you know, a lot of people who meet you and Bob, their first questions are... Why Cincinnati? Um, neither of you are from Cincinnati originally, um, mm-hmm. but you know, in many ways, um, you've adopted this city as your own, and I think I think the same is true, vice versa. I think this city has has really wrapped its arms around both of you. And I don't want to ask you why Cincinnati. I want to ask you what about Cincinnati has surprised and inspired you. Um, from the people you've met to the history to the physical architecture, um, what, what were th- what were some things that really started to kind of connect the dots for you as you as you started to settle in here and build your company at the same time? Yeah, I uh, I had been here as a kid and seen the Reds play baseball um, at Old Three Rivers. Sorry, that's Pittsburgh. I was there this week. At Crosley. Um, <laughs> um, no, the this Riverfront. Riverfront. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it eaten Skyline Chili. So I had been to Cincinnati, but it didn't really have, I, I wasn't uh, sure what exactly the city was. Um, and Bob had moved to Cincinnati to open up Tazamia because he saw a similar opportunity for coffee and would come back to San Francisco and eat burritos and wax poetic about how cool Cincy was and um, drink coffee in cafes and see what was going on in this really strong emerging coffee culture there that he was bringing back to hopefully implement in Cincy. And he called me on my birthday and said, yeah, we've got to build a brewery in Cincinnati. you got to come out here. And I was like, you're out of your mind. I, San Francisco is a very, very stimulating place. And I, I loved it. It's beautiful with geography. It's beautiful with an economy that's continually evolving. And Silicon Valley influences the future. And there's a lot of uh, you know, ethnic mixture. And so I was really on cloud nine living in a city like San Francisco. But I always loved to get to know cities. And Bob had been so bullish on Cincinnati. He was so charmed by it and was going to be here for a long time. that I said, I'll, I'll come and check it out. Um, and I came and he was living above the righteous room, which meant like three different white noise machines to just sleep through the night on the weekends, which is pretty hilarious because Bob is kind of a, a, a serious fellow. So to picture him living above a place that throws raves on Sundays was kind of a hilarious thing. But I came out and I met um, Molly at Atavala the first dinner I had in Cincinnati. She was sitting at the bar, and we were having a great cocktail. Um, Aaron Strasser was behind the bar there, and Molly had spent time in San Francisco, so we immediately hit it off and saw the commonalities between the river and the bay and the hills around and this emerging culinary and and mixology scene. Um, And then the history here is palpable. Um, It's a beautiful city, the the largest intact Italian architecture um, in, in the country. And... Um, on a scale that's really walkable 
and makes it a, a very charming place just to walk around. I mean, you can see on the weekends people come in from the suburbs because over the Rhine is a great place to, place to you know see and be seen. Great place to mix whether you're a dog person or have kids or you're you know riding around on a bike. Um, there's a lot to explore, old architecture and new, fresh what what's coming. I think there are 50 businesses that opened up in OTR this this uh, this past year, but. Um, Specifically for the brewery, um, there were 40-some breweries open before Prohibition, and they've all since gone out. And there are these carcasses still ex existing that were old breweries. And that's unlike many uh, cities in the country. And I was also charmed by um, a, a serious work ethic here and an amazing uh, kind of balanced economy between you know blue-chip Fortune 500 companies um, with P&G and GE and Kroger based here, and yet manufacturing. Like when we were putting the pieces together on that brewery that was used and we, were, we literally needed things fabricated, we weren't driving to like Dayton, we were driving to Spring Grove. And you know, within a five mile radius, we could really build anything we wanted. Um, the impeller on one of our pumps, we needed to be resized and we took that on to, into Spring Grove once again. And so um, this multifaceted work ethic yet interest in this emerging culinary scene was a really kind of combustible mix that I thought was a huge opportunity. Um, I had seen neighborhoods in San Francisco go that way. And I also said, have grown up in Connecticut, which is where I grew up in a small town of you know, 15,000 people where change was basically not existent <laughs> and things weren't balanced and, and think people weren't excited about the evolution of the town and it was just sort of the brain drain happens to New York and Boston and that's where people go. And here in Cincinnati, people were really rooting for it and really proud of, of the, the positive energy, um, you know, 3CDC and the investments that people, that, that they made in the urban core and watching people come back in from the suburbs and people come back in from cities that they've gone to. And uh, I, that bullishness and, and that pride emerging I thought was a, a really exciting place to, to start a new life. And um. So what, uh, our, one of our favorite questions to ask at the library is, what are you reading right now? Oh, man. Um, we are, um, I just read Phil Knight's biography called Shoe Dog. And to have been born in 1981, and grew up in the 80s where Nike was just such a ubiquitous brand and really cool brand. Um, and now it's a global, one of the biggest brands. Um, and to read about its fragile beginnings um, in an era when global manufacturing was not a thing and uh, there was huge cultural chasms and yet you couldn't make stuff on US soil because it was too expensive even then. And these big um, global footwear companies like Adidas that had been around and he was the little guy. Um, and Nike, to me, uh, was never that. Um, so I was really um, inspired by his voice and his um, kind of anti-corporate, vigorously impassioned stance on delivering quality and belief in his people, no matter how eccentric. And, and that, I had no idea, was how Nike was put together. And it made me, uh, you know, kind of bore a, a newfound respect for the brand. Um, and then I just read Bob is um, the more erudite out of the two of us. Um, 
and his he reads way more than I do. I've been to his apartment. I've seen his bookshelf. <laughs> there's it's there's books with titles like The Unbearable Lightness of Being and Love in the Time of Cholera. Yes, and others that, um, well, Sartre, um, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, if I'm pronouncing that half You're, you're very I'm, I'm good. Happy. No, that was, that was excellent. <laughs> but Existentialism is a Humanism um, is one that he read and, and recommended. It was a, it was a, Defense of existentialism based on the public not quite understanding it and thumbing their nose at it, um, both the communists and whatever other group of political um, people were out there and trying to articulate without notes defenses of existentialism. And I found that just a compelling scene in my head historically of feeling so strongly about something. And this is post-World War II where what guiding principles had created such an obscene, awful war for the world um, it, it needed to be decoupled from and, and to grasp a new, different philosophies on the world. And I, I love those moments in history where people are sort of reassembling and, and taking a, another look at the world. Um, and, and then to say, enough of this. I will stand up here in front of all of you and defend to the best of my abilities, this is what I believe. And the other part of me, which is like <laughs> philosophy and the teasing of words that have very similar definitions and what's the point of this stance versus that stance when, um, so I don't know, I, I, I definitely got me out of my comfort zone. Do you uh, think <laughs> creators, uh, people who, who make things, um, artists or even entrepreneurs are inherently misunderstood? Are creators inherently misunderstood? Huh. I'd never... I think craving to be understood is maybe one of the, the, the drivers of an entrepreneurial engine. Um, of I like how you flipped that. The expression that. Yeah. of a brand. I don't feel... I don't generally feel misunderstood, but I do um, feel like saying something with action. Yeah. Um, and existentialism is just that. Like, there is no human nature. It is man defining himself by the actions he makes such that if every man were to act in the same way, things would be better. The, the most comical to me aspect of philosophical discourse is you're spending a lot of time defining and redefining the nuances of the statement that a man is defined by his action. Yeah, no. <laughs> so stop talking right. and start, start doing, doing and let's do some shit. And yet action <laughs> without principle is, you know, random and disorder. I mean, it's, I mean, why act if you're not... This is an interesting question, right? Which comes first, the principle or the action? If the action comes first, then it's based on no principle, then the action is uh And you don't want to be right? paralyzed by principle, but, you know, does chaos lead to order? Yeah. Is subjectivity objective or <laughs> so veering getting the train back uh, back back to back to books a bit. Um this was a question that was in my head. Um sort of uh kind of going back a bit, what are what are some of your favorite books maybe growing up or that you've read recently um that sort of add to the fabric of who you are and has have inspired you um or just yeah. are super entertaining and you would recommend them to our listeners? Oh, 
the classics, um, The Sun Also Rises, and um, what's the Hemingway book of short stories? Or I want to say it's Last Supper, but it's not. Movable Feast? A Movable Feast, where he is young, has not proven himself, starving, and and on the outskirts of life and writing in a way where he is injecting himself <laughs> through his fiction. Um, I, I found that an inspiring moment. I think I'm often inspired by, if I read something that touches me, figuring out what moment, what, what kind of place psychologically was that author in when they were writing that and what was the world like around them. And and I think I'm like tantalized by the the fruit of the the literature into um, the historical circumstances. Um, so I love that that moment in time once again, where you know people are going from America out to Europe and envisioning a, a, a world yet to be, and and the, the excesses of the twenties, and yet being on the outskirts of that, and and wanting in, and that hunger in a movable feast. I, I think it always resonated with me. As a kid, um, which is where I did most of my reading, um, and then you turn into a workaholic and it gets fringed, pushed into the you know, just before bed regions. Um, Kerouac spoke, uh, you know, an amazing, elastic, explosive language that I um, I absolutely enjoyed. Um, a lot of people might not know this, but Bryant writes the uh, the copy on the on the uh, beer cans describing the beer, and there is a Ginsbergian sort of beat style to the way you write um, about beer. And it, I'm wondering, is that sort of, was that inspired from that literature? Just, is that how your mind works? Is, it, is yeah. your mind attracted to that kind of literature? Or did that kind of literature influence the way you write? I, um, and we've talked a bit about this personally. I, I've always struggled to know what I want out of life. And the way for me to get clarity on that has been to write and the way that I can write I think most clearly for my head and therefore express myself more purely um, is with this sort of energy and and there have been times in my life where I've been grappling with one decision or another or you know lack of identity because uh, some transitions occurring and and right that that's the this like lightning. I feel like there's this um, something inside that is um, discomfort that when channeled turns into this kinetic energy. And I think Kerouac wrote a lot like that. And um, when I sit down and pound away at the keys to try and discern answers for myself, which is my process, one of them, um, that's how it comes out. And I also think that like the beer the beer descriptions on the cans should have content in them. They content can't be so strict that we can never maneuver a recipe around a hop or something we can't get or but the that it will be permanent and compelling and enough to tell you what the spirit of that beer is um so it's been fun to conjure up an idea or an identity or a circumstance and and tattoo the can with that that hopefully conveys if you think this description is charming you will enjoy in drinking uh, this beer and vice versa, uh, is my hope. Without being too forward or, or too kind of forceful with anything, it's just sort of like, here's what I was picturing 
where and, and how, or here's what this, if this beer had something to say, it would be this guy in a courtyard somewhere adjusting his glasses because it's a very traditional style, Hans Vienna Lager, or that exciting, explosive moment um, where you feel, um, you feel very powerful in, in truth because we felt like we really were onto something and we're drinking it now and it's, it's delicious and has real powerful hops. I want to ask you two more questions. Um, one is about the future, and and the other is not. Um, could you talk a little bit about what the future holds for Ryan Geist, and also what the future holds for you, if you have other passions and things you want to pursue, um, either outside of the business realm or or whatever? Where where do you see where do you see yourself in five years, Brian? You know, oh, you really haven't done that much, so that's you know. my favorite <laughs> interview question. You learn a lot about people. They're either floored and have no idea or, you know, they try and put it together on the spot. I love that one. Um, for Rheingeist, it's a, it's a measured um, kind of focus on doing the right things right as we scale. Um, we're we're going to launch a few territories a year and, and keep things under control in an ever-increasingly competitive environment, continue working on quality, um, innovation, and we're in, at the brewery working on sours. Um, so the basement's been percolating many different types of sour beers that we're going to be branding to life and packaging and corking cage and we're working on that project now and it's it's exciting um so ranga is kind of a, a slow burn uh focused internally on doing what we do better personally um oh man i want to read more i want to write more travel <laughs> used to be fun <laughs> now it's a little <laughs> bit less so but um i've been exploring whiskey lately um, it's a compelling kind of tangential in industry that I feel like there's a, a lot to be learned from. It's in some ways older, and yet consolidation has, has been less of a, a problem for brands, and brands have lived for a long time. Um, owned by big corporations, they still act like little brands, and in the brewing world, that's a, a more tender balance and harder to pull that off, and independent breweries are... Was one that we are, and, and they're kind of a, an important thing to differentiate as. Whereas in the whiskey world, the brand is just, it's just a label, you know, and these 20 labels are made at this one distillery, and customers don't seem to care. Um, but exploring that space and, and learning what the nuances of flavor are, are there, um, and the history, you know, the Japanese whiskey industry was started by this guy who was schooled in Scotland and fell in love with a woman and at a distillery, it was her family's distillery, and brought her to start another distillery and then started his own couple of distilleries and, and that kind of domino effect of when you do something and create, it can be so compelling to others that it, it, it there's a human domino effect where they are so impassioned to do so, they go on and do more of the same in some other place or with their, to make their own mark on it. And I think that's a, a really compelling thing. Um, and I think I look forward to Cincinnati and the brewing industry here. Similarly, there were about five or six breweries when we opened up, um, and now there's close to 30 in Cincinnati, metro area, um, northern Kentucky notwithstanding. And that breeds a really um, verdant and fertile community of ideas and, and pushing the envelope in different styles and, and quality as well. Um, so there's a cool friendliness that we have all with brewers together, but there's also a competitive streak in each of us. Uh, you, entrepreneurs are competitive. You, you know, I, wanna, I want to play well, and I respect you as an opponent, but I want to win at the end of the day. Of and I think that, uh, that makes for a very exciting um, industry here in Cincinnati and the food world uh, as well. Um, 
great segue to my next question, which is, are there other are there other founders, other companies from Cincinnati, um, you know, sort of locally, that you've come across that you think should definitely be on this podcast? That should their stories must be told. The the not a Boca world team. Um, they're an inspiring place. I mean, viscerally, that space is powerful and incredible. Um, their ethos and, and determination and work ethic and creativity to kind of pull the rug out from underneath themselves to keep themselves hungry and, and working hard. I think um, the world of, of you know, Chef Falk and uh, his team. Matry, I have a ton of respect for those guys um, doing it their way um, in, you know, in Oakley. And uh, they just built a big expansion out there. So that's in our industry. And the Road Trippers team, they do uh, really cool things, uh, stitching together some of the coolest experiences you can have, at, like a modern day AAA, um, but with cooler input. <laughs> um, and that's happening right here. And uh, I guess um, we've been working on a project with UDF. Uh, I'll leave it at that for now, but um, they are a really cool company in how well that they treat their people. Um, and, and such a kind of a ubiquitous, it could be such a straightforward and, and played uh, model, but they really seem to have fun doing what they do. Um, and so you know, getting kind of open kimono with another partner in a collaboration is, is exciting, especially one that's been around for a long time. And uh, you know, we all love ice cream. And it kind of touches on all parts of the family and convenience is, uh, I, I think they do a really good job, I guess. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on the 12th story. Um, on behalf of the library, on behalf of our 181 years of history, I have to say thank you for, for creating such a great product. And then also thank you so much for, for giving your time and telling your story here. Uh, I, I we really, really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me up here. Being up in this special space is really, really inspiring. Um, and that's you know, what brought us to well, the Marie space back. and what brings us here. Awesome, man. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, cheers. Thank you for joining us today on The Twelfth Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. If you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at at MercantileLib. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guest, Bryant Goulding. The 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDee. Hey, Doug, what's up? Don't forget, don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com, where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week. <laughs>